Well, let's uh, turn then to the um, chapter containing the Ten Commandments, which is Exodus and chapter 20. And after commanding Israel in verse 3 to have no other gods before God's face, he then tells them, in verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, <coughs> but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment. Now in our first reading, we read of an incident that most of us, if we know our Bibles reasonably well, will be familiar with when Israel uh, made a golden calf and rose up early in the morning to worship by means of the golden calf. And often we're mystified, I think, as to how it was possible for the Church of God to be guilty of a sin like this, especially so soon after being delivered from Egypt and witnessing God's power as often as they did, and especially after just receiving the Ten Commandments. It seems extraordinary that within a matter of a few weeks they were worshipping God around a golden calf. But I don't think that we should be as mystified as we are by the way such a thing happened. One of the reasons that we're too mystified by it is that we tend to think of the worship of the golden calf as a breach of the first commandment, whereas it was actually a breach of the second. And once we understand it as a breach of the second, it becomes far more easy to understand how it happened and indeed to see how it could happen to ourselves too. The command broken was not, thou shalt have no other gods before me, but thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Now there is obviously a connection between the two, but it's very important to understand what the connection is. So we'll look a little more carefully at that. And I think once we grasp the meaning and the significance of the second commandment, we'll understand the golden calf a little bit better, and we'll also understand what's going on in a lot of churches, even probably as we speak today, a little bit better as well. And I think that will become more plain as we turn to the golden calf itself. Tonight, I think it might be helpful whenever we look at any command in an abstract or dogmatic way to maybe look at an illustration of the command in operation or how the command is broken. So I think that will be especially helpful with the second commandment. And tonight uh, we'll look at the incident 
of the golden calf. But for now, the second commandment itself. And let's just look with God's help at what exactly God is commanding us here. And second, why is he commanding it? Now, God, of course, doesn't always need to tell us why he commands what he commands. But he usually does. So, what is it that we are commanded and why does God command it? Now, the commandment itself requires that we make no graven image. And this is obviously tied in with the fact that when God spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai, they saw no form. Now you'll notice when we read the Ten Commandments in, or the preface to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, you'll notice that Moses emphasises that twice. And he tells them to take heed in connection with that. He said, take heed and consider you only heard a voice. He said, you did not see any form. You saw no form, no likeness. Therefore, don't make a form and don't make a likeness. It's not about making a false idol. The second commandment is about making an image of God himself. That, in essence, is the difference between the first and second commandment. God is essentially saying here in the second commandment, don't try to represent me in any way at all. By trying to represent me, you will misrepresent me. That will invariably happen because of the sinful tendency of your own heart, which is always seeking, in one way or another, to bring the Creator down to the level of the creature, to make the Creator manageable by the creature, to give the worshipper eventually some kind of control over the God that he worships. Little by little, making that God or recasting that God in the image that the worshipper wants. So the, the image will effectively become what the worshipper wants God to be rather than what God actually is. That's taking us into the realm of why God commands us. But nonetheless, that is essentially it. Don't represent me, he says, because you will misrepresent me by doing so. Therefore, don't make an image of me that is engraved. In other words, carved into wood or stone. Now, by extension, by a natural and logical extension, that carries over into painting images or anything of that kind. Don't engrave me or paint me as a heavenly angel or in the form of the sun or the moon or anything in the heavens above. Don't represent me as a man or a woman, as an ox or a lion. Don't image me or represent me as a fish or a whale, as the Philistines did, for example, with their god Dagon. Don't represent me in the likeness of anything at all in the heavens above, the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth. 
never represent the Creator by a creature. Because you remember you saw no form, therefore make no image. Now that simple connection between uh, God having no form and us making no form is an obvious reminder to us at the beginning that some forms or understandings of this commandment are not right. For example, uh, some of the more extreme uh, sects like the um, Mennonites or the Amish, they forbid making images of any kind anyway because they take that to be a prohibition of this commandment. So there's a lack of art. You'll notice that their art is always patterns rather than uh, images of things. But the commandment is not concerned with that. There's nothing wrong with painting objects, anything that God himself has created. There's nothing wrong with reproducing that in art, either by sculpture or by painting or anything of that kind. That is not what the commandment is concerned with. But then again, as well as not making an image of God, we are further told not to bow down to these images... Now, bowing down here is obviously an act of worship. So an image of God is not to be used in a worship of God. And neither, he says, are you to serve them. You're not to let these images govern your lives in any way, consulting them as though they were to govern your decision-making process, as though you had to take an image of me, perhaps out of your pocket or... Uh, go to your room to find an image of me whenever you pray so that you'll know perhaps even by touching or kissing that image what it is that God would have you do. Don't bow down in an act of worship and don't serve them and consult them in any way at all. Don't make, don't bow down and don't serve. Now you'll notice something very important here. When God says that we're not to bow down to them or to serve them. He speaks as though he is not in the image at all himself. He's making that clear. When you are bowing down to these things, he says, it is these things that you are bowing down to. They may to you be representations of me, but as far as I am concerned, he says, you're bowing down in front of these things. And when you serve these things, you think you are serving me through these things, but he says, you are serving these things alone. You are not serving me at all. In other words, God is disassociating himself completely from any image we make designed to represent himself. God is disassociating himself completely from any image we make that is designed, however well designed, by the ingenuity of man's art to represent God himself. In other words, God is saying that our worship of him through an image doesn't touch him at all. It doesn't reach him. It terminates on the image itself. So you may want, for example, I'll take an extreme example, which we'll look at tonight, you, you might want to represent God by something like a golden calf and worship God through it. 
Now, you may think that's a rather foolish thing to do. One level it is, as we'll see tonight, it's not as ridiculous as you think, but God says it never goes through the image and onto me. It always stops at the image. It's an interesting thing that the worship of the golden calf didn't disappear in Israel's history. In fact, much later on, after Solomon's declension, the next king was Jeroboam, and he, of course, had separated Israel from Judah, set up a new political kingdom. And he realized that there was um, a huge likelihood that his kingdom would never stand if people carried on going to Judah to worship. So what he did was he set up a separate temple, and he organized a separate priesthood, and he made visible representations of Jehovah, two calves, one at the, uh, in, the, in the city of Dan, which was right at the north of Israel, and the other um, at Bethel, which was at the south. So that everyone in Israel had a temple to go to, and at last they could see an image of the invisible God. The two calves were not idols as such. They were images of the one true God. But of course, that led Israel into corruption. The way to idolatry is very often through false worship of the true God. Not directly worship of a false God, but through the false worship of the true God. We always need to remember that. That's why the way we worship is not secondary. It's not an unimportant thing. It is a hugely important thing. But God says the worship addressed to him through an image stays with the image. Now this is um, maybe more important than we realise at the practical level in, in, in many Christian churches. Sometimes we associate it particularly with Roman Catholic forms of worship, but many of these Roman Catholic forms of worship are also in other churches too. But certainly in Roman Catholicism, this impinges very much on the doctrine of the Mass and the practice of the Mass. Now, for some people, when they think of the Mass, there's a tendency to think of it as just the way the Roman Catholic Church observes the Lord's Supper. There are different ways in which people observe the Lord's Supper, and they think of it just like that. That is how they observe the Lord's Supper. But it isn't that at all. The Reformers recognise that. And it's important that we all recognise that ourselves. The Mass is very different from the Lord's Supper. When, when the priest, as God's representative, consecrates the elements, when he sets them apart, he sets them in a, part, in a way that we don't. I mean, normally when we set apart water for baptism, or when we set apart bread and wine for the Lord's Supper, we set them apart simply from a common, ordinary use to a sacred use. In other words, we ask that God would bless these simple, unchanged elements and make them spiritually powerful in our lives, that he would accompany these elements with his own life-changing power. That's what we do. That's what consecration is. Not so in the Mass. In the Mass, when the priest consecrates the elements... They are transformed, not from a common use to a spiritual use, but actually, well, according to themselves, 
transformed in substance. The technical term given to that is transubstantiation. Their substance changes from one thing to another so that the wafer actually becomes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the wine becomes the blood. Not representatives of it, but the real thing. That is why what happens to the bread and the wine is so important to Roman Catholicism. Not a, not a drop can be spilt or anything of that kind. Anything left over has to be consumed by the priesthood and so on. Because it becomes the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why when the elements are lifted up, the people are to kneel. And the technical term is the adoration of the host. And the host is uh, the sacrifice, uh, the sacrificial Christ. As he is lifted up, we're to add over that piece of bread. I call it a piece of bread because that's what it is. It has not transubstantiated. The astonishing teaching that they have is that, the, this sounds very philosophical, but that the accidents of the bread and wine remain the same, but the substance has changed. To put that into ordinary common language, it feels like bread, smells like bread, touches like bread, tastes like bread, but it isn't bread at all. It is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has transubstantiated. Now, friends, uh, nobody is asked to believe a miracle of that kind in the Bible. You can search the Word of God from the beginning to the end, and you are never asked to believe a miracle that contradicts uh, both your senses and common sense. Never. Miracles are always wonderful. They transcend law. They are never irrational. Never. Never are we asked, uh, for example, when the Lord turned water into wine, we're not ever asked to believe that it is water even when it is wine, or to think that it is wine when it is, in fact, just water. Never. But that is what's required of us to do. Now, the problem arises, of course, when you are asked to treat that bread and that wine as the body and blood of the Lord. Our Reformation forefathers said that however kindly you may wish to look upon such a thing, there is no other description of it but idolatry. Because the worship, the adoration that is offered to that host doesn't go to God, it terminates on the bread. How dare we say that a piece of bread is the body of the Lord? How dare we say that wine is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not, cannot be. And to participate in that is to participate in idol worship. After all, God said, you worship the calf, not me. The Israelites who gathered to worship Jehovah at Dan and at Bethel under the figure of a golden calf were worshipping the calves. And if they said to the Lord, well, no, we are worshipping you through the calves, God says, no, you're worshipping the work of your own hands. It always terminates on the thing 
it does not reach God himself. So that's one area where sad to say the Mass is a clear violation of the second commandment. You'll notice of course that uh, Roman Catholicism would I suppose understand that a little better if they didn't mix the second and first commandments together. The fact that they roll the first commandment into the second and take the two as one prohibition of idolatry means that they don't look at it this way. But this is how God wants us to look at it as we'll see later tonight. When you think about it, the same problem arises in connection with images of Christ generally. Not just the wafer or the wine, but the tendency to make images of Christ. The one we're most familiar with is again, or it originates in Roman Catholicism, but I'm noticing people using it generally anyway, it's a crucifix. Now for some time people have worn the cross as a kind of adornment, which is a very strange adornment to wear, but I'm noticing recently people wearing crucifixes. Now a crucifix is different from a cross. On a crucifix, Christ is fixed to the cross. You will see that there is an emblem of the cross with the Saviour still on it. Now again, according to Roman Catholic theology, when you bow before a crucifix, it is right to worship it and to recognise God indwelling that image. That's their understanding of it. And when you give the highest form of worship to that cross, the highest form of worship which they say should be given to it, to that crucifix, they believe, of course, it doesn't terminate on the crucifix, that it terminates on the God who indwells the crucifix. Of course, that is a clear violation of the second commandment not making a graven image or bowing down before it or serving it. You may sometimes say, well, how, how can intelligent men and women just justify that kind of practice? Well, I'll, I'll come to that in a way in a second, but you could just as easily ask, how did Aaron justify taking the earrings from people's ears and making a golden calf and dedicating the day to a feast of Jehovah? What's the answer to that? Well, we'll see. But if Aaron could do that, do you not think that many people can justify the same thing in connection with a crucifix? What of images of Christ generally? Those of you who try and teach your children will sometimes find that you can't pick up a book that is teaching children lessons without finding a portrait or an image of Christ in it somewhere. Christian focus publications, as far as I understand, certainly still refrains from using images of the Lord. Otherwise, you probably have to go outside this country to find publishing houses who produce good material for children, including Bibles that don't contain images of the Lord. But what about these images, even if you're not bowing down before them or serving them? Is it still okay to make such an image? Well, of course, you'll find in, in reformed circles that there are plenty who say it is, that there's no harm in doing such a thing. And the arguments that they use tend to revolve around the fact that God has actually become man. God has chosen to become man. And from the moment he becomes man in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is acceptable to, to draw an image of him, at least as a man. Now, you'll find two or three arguments used for that. The first argument is very pragmatic. They'll say things to you like this. Well, 
It's impossible to think of Jesus without immediately in your mind thinking of some kind of person with features and therefore it can't be wrong to draw it, to put it on a piece of paper or to use it as a, a device for teaching or something of that kind. Now it is very true that you can't think of something you know without making a picture of it. I mean if I say car to you, you've thought of a car. If I say fish, immediately you thought of a fish. So I suppose it's true if I say Jesus of Nazareth that you will immediately think of a human representation in your mind. That doesn't, of course, justify the representation that you made. Neither does it justify you putting it down in a form and giving it to others. But I want to take you a step back and think about something else too. You'll remember that there are three persons in the Godhead. If I say to you that God the Father sits on his throne, what have you done? You've probably conceived an image of the Father in your mind. That image itself may be based on a picture or a representation that you saw when you were a child. If you're going to justify the image of the Lord on the basis um, that you can't think of him without conceiving of an image, well, does that not apply to the Father too? But I'm sure you would acknowledge that on no account are you to make an image of God the Father. So on what basis then are you to make an image of God the Son? But there's more to it than that as well. Certainly the fact that we are bound to think of a person does encourage us to think that one day we will see him. You see, the, the problem with the command, or the reason why the command is given, is tied in with the fact that we, we can't represent God properly. Our representations will be inaccurate, and when we make them, we will, we will convey inaccurate information to others. But nonetheless, it is a reminder to us that one day we, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. We, we shall see the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, as he is, not as we imagine him to be. We, we shall behold his eyes, his face, and his hands, and his feet. So the fact that we do represent him is an encouragement to believe that one day we shall see him. But it's not an encouragement to justify our representations or to pass them off to anyone else. The fact of the matter is, friends, that in this journey, in this pilgrimage, we live by faith. And we endure seeing him who is invisible. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself is invisible to us and will remain invisible to us and must remain invisible because the life that we live, we live by faith in him. It is the carnal side of us that wants to represent him in human form. More about that in a second. Of course, people will also say that these uh, crucifixes and images of Christ are aids to devotion. Uh, they say things like, well, you have a wandering mind, don't you? Well, wouldn't it be good when you bowed your knees in prayer if you were able to look at a, a cross on the wall with a saviour hanging on it? Wouldn't that help to concentrate your thoughts wonderfully? Well, friends, if that was true, it wouldn't just be allowed. I think God would command it. I think there would be 
several commands somewhere in the scripture telling us to make images of God so that it would concentrate our minds wonderfully. Uh, We don't have such a thing at all. (laughs) These human aids that we devise suddenly become necessary. And lo and behold, as I said earlier, the kind of gods that you make will project your own desires and wishes and aspirations onto that god. You suddenly find the god that you're supposed to be communicating with is not the god that you're communicating with at all. That's why you find people becoming obsessed with these idols and images. They carry them around in their pockets. They look at them everywhere. Because what they look for from God has been transferred onto the image. If all of this wasn't subtle, it wouldn't be a problem. Um, I mean, the, the devil never comes with suggestions in worship that are so ridiculous that no one would adopt them. I mean, what's the point of that? The devil is nothing if not subtle. And crucifixes and images and representations of Christ work exactly like that. They are ways in which the devil brings the Lord down to meet you. <coughs> by bringing you down to your dimensions, which is never the way to meet God. Of course, underlying these pragmatic arguments, there is the theological argument. People say, look, God became man. He became man. Well, yes, he did. But when he became man, he didn't become somebody else. It's one person in two natures. And the person is not a human person. Jesus Christ is not a human person. He is a divine person alone with a human nature. Now, it's important that we understand that. For some people, these things are technical, they're over-refinements. They're absolutely not technical over-refinements. At no point does Christ become another person other than who he is. It is God manifest in the flesh. The person, the Lord, the Son of God, took a human nature. So if you were to point to him on earth and say, who is that? The answer to that is, that is the Son of God. Is he anyone else besides the Son of God? No, he is the Son of God. That is God and God alone. The fact that he walks around in a body is a remarkable thing. The fact that he possesses a true or a reasonable or rational soul is a remarkable thing. But he is still God and God alone. He hasn't become a man as well as God. He is God manifest in the flesh. And once we understand that, we immediately see the problem with trying to make representations of him. (laughs) Because to make representations of him is to make representations of God. You're still in the same place. It doesn't matter whether God has chosen to come into this world as a man. It doesn't change our license or lack of license to draw him, to make an image of him. Because he is, of course, as a man, a unique man. No point in pretending that the Lord Jesus Christ was just like another man. He was not. I don't know if you've ever noticed, you probably have, but we have four biographies of the Lord in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You'll notice that there is not one single detail (coughs) in connection with his looks. That's all the more significant when 
I mean, if you read, read literature in the pre-photographic age, and uh, that goes a long way back, take Victorian literature, any literature before that, when they introduce characters to you, I don't know if you've noticed, but they sometimes have two or three pages on what people look like. Shape of their heads, the shape of their eyes, and uh, their mouth and their nose, where the nose is set, where the mouth is set, the appearance of the chin, the appearance of the body. Pages and pages. They attach great importance to it. Not a syllable in the four evangelists. You sometimes wonder, well, they could have not told us whether he was tall, whether he was short, uh, what proportion his nose was in proportion to the rest of his face, or his eyes, how did his eyes appear, or how did his mouth appear. Not a word. Not a word. Why not? I wonder why not. God doesn't want us to think of such a thing. That's not our focus. Yes, there are passages that remind us that he had a true body. His hands were pierced, yes, and his feet were pierced. We're told that he had a beard and that people pulled it violently from his face. Still no attempt to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. No description at all. A veil silence. Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, he says, we knew Christ according to the flesh, but we no longer know him according to the flesh. He's not just speaking there of the fact that he's changed himself, but the fact that the Christ he has access to is not the Christ that was. Touch me not, I have not yet ascended to my Father. The Lord has gone home to glory in his beautified uh, human nature and we are to endure seeing him who is invisible. You'll notice too that every time the Lord is represented it leaves you disappointed and it leaves you spiritually sad. The pictures tend to romanticise him. He often has long hair where are we told in the Bible that Jesus had long hair? That is a, a medieval kind of Renaissance view of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that long hair on a man is a shame to him. So I don't think the Lord had long hair. We're nowhere told that he did have. You'll notice in pictures that tend to come from America, he's often blonde with blue eyes. Do you really think the Lord was blonde with blue eyes? You see, what's happening again is we are putting our ideas of perfection on him. Once you want to make an image of the Lord, you want to make a perfect one. Is that not blasphemous, really? Do we think we can project our ideas of a perfect man onto the Lord Jesus Christ? It becomes worse in films. Now, I don't advocate at all watching films that portray the Lord Jesus Christ. Far from saying I don't advocate it, I would say to you that it is wrong to do so. I don't do it myself. There have been recent ones, of course, like The Passion, which tried to graphically uh, portray the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ as though that could convert people. The, the first of these um, films, some of you here are old enough to remember it, but there was a series in the late 1970s um, called Jesus of Nazareth and the actor who portrayed Christ, if we can use such a term, 
was Robert Powell. I'm not sure whether he's still living. Robert Powell was interviewed later, and he said that when he became an actor, he said that there was a, an old director who gave him advice. He said, there are two characters that you must never play, Superman and Jesus of Nazareth, because he says you won't do either of them justice. <coughs> now, that's an interesting thing. Strange how somebody like that who isn't a Christian can pick that up. You cannot do the Lord Jesus Christ justice. How true. Uh, I've never watched one of these films. That doesn't mean I haven't seen clips of them. And some of the clips I've seen, honestly, you know, just a a ten second piece and the Lord is supposedly in it and immediately you say, no, that's not right. The way he looks, the way he laughed there, the way he acted there, all of these things, they're not taking me close to the Saviour at all. They're putting the Saviour far, far away from me. It's someone's idea. Someone trying to represent the Lord. Let, let me take it away from people. Let me take it away from Robert Powell. Let me put it to yourself. Suppose there was to be a, a play set up in Stormway that was going to run for a month. And you are approached and you say, would you play the, the role of Jesus in, in this play? We, w- we want to see you perform some of these miracles and how you interacted with people and how you preached. Would you dream of doing such a thing? Would you dream of doing such a thing? Honestly, in your heart, before God in prayer, would you dream of it? I would venture to say no. You would shudder at the thought of putting your hand to such a thing. Rightly so. Who am I? At best, my eyes are sinful. My looks are sinful. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do. There's sin to be picked up from it. That transposes itself immediately onto the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately he's defiled. We have misrepresented Jesus by trying to represent him. Therefore, take nothing to do with these things. It doesn't matter how slick the production. It doesn't matter how famous the actor. It doesn't matter how many people come out of films like that crying, pouring copious tears. It doesn't matter. Leave it and have nothing to do with it because it is a violation of the second commandment. We always fail to honour our God like that. Imagine, if you were asked to play the part of Christ, what you are actually being asked to do is to play God. You, you tell us, you, you live out how God lived out in this world. Oh, no, friends. No, I can't do that and you can't do that. And I'm shocked at the tendency that's creeping into this island to use things like nativity plays in church to start communicating the gospel and people have dolls this isn't churches in the island people have dolls in a crib to represent the Lord Jesus you wonder how it's possible for such a thing to happen so quickly in a land that has known so much better amazing using a doll to represent Well, the Lord of glory who lay in that manger was the same Lord of glory who hung on that cross. 
And if a person has the sense not to represent him as he lay hanging on the cross, neither do you represent him as he lay there as a child in the beauty of holiness, holy, harmless and undefiled. How dare we put a doll in the place and have people around it with wings like angels and everybody having a little laugh while the children go through this dramatic sketch. It's all a violation of the second commandment and violations of the second commandment usually lead to violations of the first. You have already started some kind of idolatry when you are misrepresenting God. Now why does God command this? And obviously this is a lot briefer. Sorry for mismanaging the time. Well it's to do with this jealousy, he says. You shall not make a carved image of me or any representation of me because I, in verse 5, the Lord your God am a jealous God. Now jealousy is a misunderstood emotion and it's a necessary part of love. All true love is a jealous love. The jealousy in love means that love wants to keep what is lawfully its own and what is meant to be its own. It's related to, but totally different from envy, which is always a sin. Envy means that you want what somebody else has and you want it at their expense. Now, we tend to use the word jealousy and the word envy interchangeably. Uh, or I'm jealous of you, whereas what you really mean is I'm envious of you. Uh, and sometimes we, we do have to watch words because they are different. When God says he's jealous, he's saying nothing negative about himself. He's saying something very, very positive about himself. Now certainly jealousy can break its lawful bounds and it can become another thing. Uh, but proper jealousy is a proper emotion to have. Think of it, for example, in connection with a husband and wife. Now, if I as a husband am not uh, jealous in connection to my, with my wife, that means I don't love my wife. If she's not jealous in connection with me, it means that she does not love me. If you as a husband and wife are not jealous in connection with each other, then you don't love each other. Jealousy means that as a wife you recognize that your husband is yours and is meant to be yours alone. That your husband does not belong to another woman. So the lawful emotion that attaches you to your, to your spouse is jealousy. And uh, an emotion that didn't care whether your husband was attaching himself to other women would mean there was a lack of love there in either part. Now, when I'm saying that it can burst its bounds, of course, we all know people who take that jealousy uh, to an excess. Uh, the reason for that involves other sins, but that gets too complicated. Let me just leave it at the moment at the simple fact that jealousy in itself is a pure emotion connected with love. It means that you love something that you are meant to love as your possession and as your possession alone. And it's right to be concerned that it be yours and that it be yours alone. Your wife is yours and not anybody else's. What is God jealous of? 
Number one, he is jealous of his own glory. In other words, who he is. And I suppose the term glory is especially connected to the manifestation of who he is. Paul tells us that the sun and the moon and the stars all have their own glory. So the sun communicates itself through its glory. That tells me what what the sun is. It's It's the way I see it. The moon has its own distinctive glory. Now, God as a being has his own glory. He is to be seen and to be viewed in a certain way. And he don't, doesn't want his being or his character to be misrepresented in any way at all. He is jealous of his own image. I suppose we all are to some extent, you know, just at the basic end maybe rather foolish level. Sometimes you see a photo of yourself and you say, well, that's not me at all. Or at least I hope that's not me. That, that doesn't really represent me. But of course, with more serious things, it comes home to you. For example, there's a story going round about you. It's not true. You're being misrepresented. That's not who you are. It's not true to your character. It's not true to how you think and how you feel. You're misrepresented. And not only are you concerned that you are misrepresented yourself, but you're probably concerned for your children or for your relatives, that, that you are therefore being misrepresented to them. And that can cause all kinds of evils. Now, God has his own character, and he doesn't want it misrepresented. In any, if you pardon the language, he doesn't want it represented in any way, shape, or form. I mean that literally. He doesn't want it misrepresented in any way, shape, or form. Put God in a figure, and immediately you've misrepresented him. As Paul said to the Athenians, he said, You ought not to think that the divine nature is something shaped by art and by man's devising. Or as Paul said in Romans 1, where he's talking about the way that mankind degenerates, he said, It begins by not being thankful for their creator, and then he moves on to worshipping the the creature rather than the creator changing his likeness he says into the image of a four footed beast uh, or of an ox that eats grass or a man or a woman no God has his own image rights and he's concerned how he's presented and as as well as being jealous of his own glory let me say lastly that he's jealous of his own people um, jealousy is cruel as a grave. Jealousy is like the fire of God in the Song of Solomon. He is supremely jealous of his own people, that they know him and love him for who exactly he is. And he also knows that the use of images will corrupt their view of himself. That's what these things do. And you'll notice that this jealousy will ensure that he will always act according to his own character. Notice that when he says, I'm a jealous God, he says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, while showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. I am a God, he says, who punishes iniquity, and I reward righteousness. I visit iniquity, he says, 
even on the third and fourth generation. Now, <clears throat> sometimes that causes a problem because we compare it to other parts of Scripture, for example, Ezekiel 18, which tells us that God does not punish children for the transgressions of their parents. That is very true. But when he speaks about visiting the iniquity, the fact of the matter is that the Lord has appointed the family unit for a purpose. The good in a family runs from one generation to the next. The good example that you set flows down from one generation to the next. So does the evil. It is one thing that ought to make you stop and think before you commit any evil at all that the effect of that evil will be visited upon your children and upon your children's children right down to the third and fourth generation. Many a person is born in pretty dire circumstances because of deliberate willful sins that go back to their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. And it's one way that God has like I said, of checking us, to think that the consequences of my evil will pass down, maybe not just in my own family, but beyond that too. But showing mercy to the thousands, he says, who love me and who keep my commandments. (coughs) Now, um, I think it's worth, before I close, just, just noticing this. Uh, One of the things that is so often misrepresented in connection with God is the fact that he punishes sin and rewards righteousness. You can go to so many churches today where it's not just that hell will not be mentioned in terms of that four-letter word, but the consequences of not believing will not be made plain at all. Week by week. And of course, you'll remember always that when God tells us not to do something, we're told to do something. This reminder not to worship me like that is also a reminder to worship me like this. I still remember being in a church many years ago um, where the singing just went on and on and on and on. And uh, there wasn't anything in the preaching at all. I remember leafing through the the, the songbook, the praise book that they had, which I think had over 700 songs. <clears throat> I started to notice patterns. I wasn't being attentive. I, I make no apology for that. I still don't know why I didn't really walk out. But anyway, looking through the book, there wasn't a word about any of these things. Not a word. Not a word about judgment. Not a word about hell. Not a word about suffering. Not a word about torment. Not a word. I mean, over 700 songs. How do you miss that? Unless you're trying to miss it. Which, of course, means that you're doing what? You're misrepresenting God. In the very songs you choose to sing and not to sing, you are misrepresenting God. We misrepresent God by omission as well as by commission. There's many a preacher who doesn't preach the Christian faith because they miss things out. And sometimes it takes you a long while, you're sitting there, and then it dawns on you, well, I'm never hearing this, or I'm never hearing that. It's just not there. And as someone once said, the sign that a a church is losing a doctrine is that it never hears the thing preached. That, by the way, is why the Sabbath itself is disappearing in our midst, because it is seldom preached as a commandment in case people interfere with people's ways of life. 
So don't misrepresent me. I am a jealous God and I will visit the consequences of every attempt to misrepresent me. Now, all of that to some extent, although I try to make it as practical as I can in a way, the best way to understand it is, is, is by looking at a case in point. And God in his wisdom allows a case to unfold within a matter of weeks where all this comes to a head. And looking at that will help us understand it better. Let us pray. <laughs> o Lord, of God, we pray to respect uh, thy nature and uh, to recognise that in your great wisdom you have hidden many things from us. Even though you walked this earth in the space of over three years, you have wisely left us no image of yourself. Our Saviour could easily have built one himself. He could have instructed the apostles how to carve one that could be used and replicated in the worship of your great name. But you did not do such a thing. You chose to remain invisible, except to the eye of faith. And help us therefore not to make for ourselves what you have chosen not to make for us. And to be content with the spiritual descriptions that we have of your glorious character. Worshipping the one who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Teach us to love thee with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to be jealous of your glory, even as you are jealous for our spiritual welfare. In Christ's name, Amen. Our uh, last singing is in Psalm 96. And at verse 5. Psalm 96, verse 5. For all the gods are idols done, which blinded nations fear, but our God is the Lord by whom the heavens created were. Great honour is before his face, and majesty divine. Strength is within his holy place, and there doth beauty shine. You'll notice that the Lord's beauty shines in his sanctuary. It's just that it's not imaged in the way that we try to do it. Do ye ascribe unto the Lord of people every tribe, glory do ye unto the Lord, and mighty power <coughs> ascribe. Five to seven, we stand to sing. <coughs> Oh! 
the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.